Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. episode of Lady at the Road podcast. My name is Arda Marine. You might know me from Insatiable or Chelsea Lately or Shameless. I'm here with my co-host, Miss Julianne Robinson. Yes. What do people yes. know you from, Julianne? <laughs> they best know me for um, directing the pilot of Bridgerton. <sighs> it never gets old for me. I'm into it. Well, Here's a we're having today. Are you so excited for our guest today, Miss? I'm Julianne? really, really excited. She's a brilliant, brilliant stand-up comedian. She was my co-host of the show that I did for many years in Brooklyn called The Party Machine that we did at Union Hall and the Bell House. She's such a good joke writer. She's such a great performer. And she's also like a top dog trainer in Los Angeles. Uh, one of my very favorite people. Miss Lisa Delarios. Hello, Lisa. Hi, ladies of the road. It's so good to be here. Julian's going to catch our listeners up on how we came to this podcast right now. Well, last week we were talking about your life as a stand-up. And then I was really interested when Anna was talking about Zach Galifianakis was on David Letterman's show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And Anna... What did you say? Anna called me and you had a question. Anna, what did you what did you call and ask me? Well, I had heard it. He says your name. Basically, Zach Galifianakis says your name in a way where I was watching it, you know, kind of zoned out on my phone. And then I heard him say Lisa Delarius. And I was like, Lisa? Lisa. <laughs> like to my, you know, almost to myself, like, that's Lisa. You know, talking to my partner like Lisa. <laughs> and he was like, what, what? What? And I'm like, Lisa. It's Lisa. Talking about Lisa. So, you know, I texted Arden immediately. <laughs> He says Lisa 
Lisa told me about being stand-up. You should try it. You should really, really try it. You should really try it. So you you obviously were singularly instrumental in his career, which obviously, you know, we all know all about that. So I was just fascinated and I wanted to know where it all began. What Jillian and I were talking before the show about this. Like, so, so he was talking about how he moved to New York and that he met this woman named Lisa. And, Delarios. And Delarios. <laughs> Is that how you actually pronounce your last name? Well, I go back and forth. I, I sometimes I say Delarios, sometimes I say Delarios, but my family's from Texas, so they all just say Delarios. Delarios. But it's a Spanish word, so it really should be Delarios. But I think Zach says Delarios. <laughs> Well, I was curious, just, and Julianne and I were discussing this. I know that really struck Julianne that like this, so, you know, he, and I was watching it last night that here he, they are, it's he and David Letterman. They're in this like hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people in the audience. He's talking about moving from North Carolina to New York City and he meets you. And that's, I also met both of you at that time. And it just occurred to me, the more that I've gotten to know you and as the audience just learned, I now, you know, the more I've gotten to know you that I know you didn't grow up with pop culture, really. You didn't really grow up with much TV. You didn't grow up listening to, you know, radio. And how did you become aware of stand-up? How did you decide you wanted to be a stand-up? Like, what was, like, the big dream? How old were you? And did you move to New York to become a stand-up? Those are, like, I, I never actually asked you your Genesis question. Like, how you got from a person that couldn't watch TV to... Zach is saying he met you and you're telling him to become a stand-up. How did that, how did you move from small town Texas to New York with the dream of being a stand-up, having grown up in an evangelical house? Uh, let's see if I know the answer. Um, <laughs> I, you know, what's interesting is I, I remember, I mean, I lived in East Texas from age eight um, until I graduated high school. I lived in the woods on 80 acres we didn't even have running water or electricity for a period of time because we were so far off the grid. And I remember going to one of my classmates' birthday party and they went around and asked all, like, I think we were like seven or eight. Well, I guess we were eight because I was definitely in East Texas at the time. And they asked, what did we want to be when we grew up? And I said a comedian. Wow. Which is so weird to me. I don't know why I said that. I don't know where I got that idea. And then I remember there was another point when I was a kid and I told my parents I wanted to be a ventriloquist and they bought me a teach yourself ventriloquism kit for Christmas. Did you have a dummy? It was, it was so, it was such a cheap kit. Like it wasn't even a real dummy. It was a cardboard like doll with like, um, those push pins. Like, so you could like move a string and its mouth would open. <laughs> but I did learn which consonants or which letters you replace the consonants with because the consonants are where you have to close your lips. <laughs> so like, like boy, for example, you, you use uh, doy. Oh yeah, you use D instead of B. So, oh, what a nice uh, boy, boy. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm not... I'm not knitting my lips right now. Well, I do. I am a little. I'm out of practice. Practice. Oh How did I never know this? <laughs> Can I ask a question? Um, I'm just really curious. The living off the grid thing. Was that a religious thing? Was that a 
what where did that come from? What what was the decision behind that? Because and was it idyllic? Because it kind of sounds cool. You know, I think my parents were young, and they were they had been hippies. Like they went to Woodstock together. Um, my dad had studied Eastern religion before he met my mom. And then they had this weird conversion. I mean, they were in Texas after all. And they went to one of those mega churches. And so they wanted to move out of the city because we were living in Dallas. So they wanted to move to the country. And I think my dad wanted the idyllic living off the land kind of you know, hippie utopia. But my mom, I think more, there was also, it was the Bible Belt and there were all of these fundamentalist um, communities out there and they wanted to be involved. And they put my brother and I into a private school called Christian Heritage. And uh, our teachers were missionaries. And um, I remember my third grade teacher said, said to our class that the Pope was evil. So they, and, and they bought this, 80 acre plot of land in, uh, in the woods it, to build a house. My dad built the house. He drilled a well. Um, he also was in the, had been in the solar business in the seventies. My dad could build solar panels, wow, solar panels. Wow. Gary. Gary. My dad's like <laughs> a larger than life character. And, um, yeah. So they moved out there kind of to live off the land and, 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 you know, they thought it would be good for their kids, but then also the, you know, there were all these religious communities they wanted to get involved in. So, and then somehow they found their way out of that into Catholicism. <laughs> Why, what was, do you know what that journey was? You know, my parents aren't rednecks. Like they're actually smart seeking, you know, curious people. And they, they were both, I think, spiritually seeking for different reasons. And I think, I honestly don't know how they ended up on Catholicism specifically, but I, I went through catechism, like normal kids that were born into the Catholic church, you know, and they go through this. Are you Catholic, Julian? I am. How weird. What would you say that? That's so I freaky. Don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not now, but I grew up that way. Mm -hmm. So you you went through like the whatever. What is that called? Catechism? Oh, God, confirmation. Confirmation. In my I my family was not religious, but I remember in all the kids in my school growing up went to cate they went to CCD catechism. They were like, CCD. We're going, we're going mm -hmm. to CCD. Mm -hmm. I went to CCD, but that mm -hmm. was. I was joining the church, whereas the other kids, it was like, that was what they'd always been doing, you know? And, um, yeah, so that was a new leaf. And, uh, I think things felt a little normal. And then I went to public school. They took us out of Christian heritage and st stuck us in, uh, a public school. How old were you? How old were you? I guess I was nine then we are like in a school with rednecks. Like it was full on small town, East Texas in the eighties. And, uh, that was kind of shocking. What and was it? What was it like? I mean, obviously you're a fish out of water, right? I was definitely a weirdo, but I, I had a way of kind of 
fitting in. in a, Is that where comedy comes in? Well, you know, there's definitely humor in my family. Gary's funny. I, my dad's funny. He doesn't really try to be funny, but he's, my grandparents are funny. Is your brother funny? He tries to be. <laughs> <laughs> Was your family shocked that as you started to express that you wanted to be a stand-up? I will say that there was, you know, with with my parentals, there was some heaviness in my household growing up. Like my parents, you know, didn't have a great marriage. So there was like kind of a sadness that was um, ever present. And I, I do feel like I, um, you know, um, my defense mechanism was to be funny and silly and keep everything light. And I remember like in junior high, I had a quote that I would say to my family is nobody takes me humorously around here. (laughs) (laughs) I heard, I heard, um, I found a clip of you online talking about your mom and saying when you, when she first heard, saw you do stand up, she said to you afterwards, well, you look pretty. Yeah, that was um, my only televised stand-up, which was in 2007, and I did Live at Gotham on Comedy Central, which was a big deal for me. I was actually, interestingly, I had left New York, and I Mm -hmm. had moved to Austin for a few years, and the comedy scene in Austin was amazing, Mm -hmm. and so much so that like industry people would come to Austin to find talent. And that's where I got kind of seen, you know, um, they, they were doing an audition for Live at Gotham, which was a, a live stand-up show that was on Comedy Central for a few years. And, and I did an audition there and, and I got the gig and yeah, like I remember, you know, we taped it and then it aired a couple months later and I wasn't with my mom, but I spoke to her, I told her it was going to air and my mom, so my, where my parents kind of went religiously, like they split up. My dad has kind of gone back to his Eastern Buddhism roots, but my mother has continued to go m- m- deeper into Christianity. And so, yeah, she saw me perform and I am a clean comic. Like I'm She's really clean, goofy, observational, I talk about animals and Um, but my mom managed to find something offensive. So yeah, I said, Hey mom, did you see, you know, did you see the taping or whatever? And she, she was like, yeah, I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, what did you think? Which I, you know, I didn't even want to ask. And she's like, well, you look pretty. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was like, uh, Uh, so I, she's never seen me perform again. I've never let her. She never asked. It was like just an understood thing. Mm. It was it. I mean, did you expect support? No, I didn't. I wasn't, I I, I didn't expect it to be that lame, her Mm. response, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah, I I didn't expect, I didn't, I, I think I was nervous to ask her, but you know, it's like, you never quite give up trying to get, get what you need. And there's like an emphasis on being feminine in that statement. Do you think that that was? It's like that couldn't be the more. There's nothing. There couldn't. She couldn't have said a worse thing. Actually, it was like it'd be. It, I would have rather her said, "Well, you looked ugly." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was talking 
to Arden and she was saying that you have been rep by every major manager in the biz. But when they, <laughs> as soon as I was just interested in wondering if there's a line between the your mom's comment and then those guys, because every time they told you to, you know, look pretty, sex it up, wear the heels, you fired them. Is that accurate? Is that an accurate <laughs> statement? Well, I, I, I did have two managers that now are pretty, I mean, one of them was pretty big manager then. Um, and now one of them is a pretty big manager and only one of them made a remark like that to me. Yeah. I, I definitely felt like I remember thinking, it's not so much that I'm offended because he told me I needed to not be afraid of my body. That was the quote. He the saw me perform. It's so gross. He saw me. I mean, it was, guys, it was the 90s. I was wearing oversized jeans, you know? It was the 90s. Nobody was looking sexy in the 90s. I was, like, I wear vintage clothes. I, like, dress kind It was also of- at the height of, like, I knew you then. And it was also at the height of when Janine Groffalo had just proven that you can be kind of quirky and still beautiful. And and they try to put her in a box, you know, that 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 there's so much like commenting on your looks, you know, when when the guys just get to go be funny and there was so much commenting on your looks. I remember thinking as a female comedian, you have to either be sexy or asexual. Like there's mm-hmm. no in between. And I never felt like I fit into either one of those. I was like, and I, I liked feeling like I was not either of those, you know, I just was wanted to be funny. And, and you kind of, when you step on stage as a semi-attractive female, you're up against, you're kind of up against that a little bit. I mean, you and I've talked about this a lot where, if you're not being like super sexy with it and you're, but and you're not like funny looking or whatever, where you're not an underdog, where you're not an underdog, some of the audience already resents you because <laughs> they're, they're used to it. Or, or it, Maybe it's changing more now, but historically, as we were coming up, we weren't guys, you know? And so it's, for me, I always felt like I had to kind of neuter it down so I wasn't threatening, but still be cute enough that they would listen. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that the other manager who he saw me, I was 21. I was so young and I was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, my, one of my first jokes was about Kenny G. Like (laughs) it was just, you You know, I I knew you then you were great though. You were always great. You've always been you. I've always been such a fan. I mean, I didn't even know you very well then. And I had so much respect for your writing. And it was so funny. I've been watching clips online. I mean, you're just so funny. You're so great. Yes. Wow. That is very nice. And, and Arden, you've always been so supportive. And if only I, had believed in myself as much as, you know, my good friends. I'm going to ask you two questions. What was your big dream when you moved? Like when you moved, like what would your ideal outcome have been moving to New York? You know, it's funny. I've thought about this a lot because that was a really major time in my life. So I was 21. I had no direction in my life. And I forgot to mention that you know, I'd had those like little weird moments as a child wanting to be a comedian and ventriloquist, but then 
that went away and I graduated from high school and Robert E. Lee High School in Tyler, Texas. That's right. Um, and then I moved to Dallas, you know, it was the closest big city and I started going to community college and I was totally directionless. And then I had my first love. Like I met an amazing guy and I was 19 and we fell in love in Dallas and we moved in together and he was this prodigy musician. He was like, kind of semi-celebrity in Dallas when he was like 14. And he was always, you know, he thought I was hilarious. And I remember he gave me a gift of, there was a stand-up comedy book in the 90s called Judy Carter. I have that. I had that. It's so cliche. And, you know, it's like, what's your ethnicity and write jokes about your ethnicity. Um, (laughs) But I do think that he encouraged me and we were living together. And then when I was 19 and he went on tour for a few months, it was summer and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I had a, had a friend from high school who had moved to New York city. And so I decided to go and stay with her for the, the time that he was on tour, I went to stay with my friend and I enrolled in two stand-up comedy classes at the New School for Social Research. <laughs> One of them was a, uh, instructed by this guy named Scott Blakeman, who's still a New York stand-up. Um, and one of them was this wild old improviser named Marty Friedberg, whose zipper was always down. Um, <laughs> and he, he actually, he used to do comedy with Andy Kaufman and I, I saw him on some of the old Annie Kaufman show tapes. So that was my first time ever going on stage. So I was in New York for the summer and I took these comedy classes. I, I didn't go, I didn't have theater background in school. Like I had not, I was, had never been a performer. I was terrified to be in front of people, but I knew that I had this itch and it had something to do with humor. And so I, you know, I did that not with some clear goal, like I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be, I, I didn't envision anything, but I think my main motivation was, you know, I want to find my thing. I want to know what my thing is and I want to not be afraid. And piggybacking off of what you said earlier of like, you wish you had the belief in yourself. It's funny. Like I, um, I can certainly, I, when I was on med TV every summer, I would still go take classes at the groundlings. Cause I felt like it was a fluke that I'd been hired. And I just now knowing you and being like one of your number one fans now for 20 years, <laughs> would it be correct to say that you feel like there's, that you still need, like, I know that you, sometimes you torture yourself with, like, I just need, I just need to do three more months of mics. I just need to do three more things. I just need, like, this joke just, you know, that, is that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, it's always been a struggle for me. I've never, I mean, I can honestly say that I've never really enjoyed doing (laughs) stand-up. And I did it for, you know, over 20 years. Yeah, I I just, um, it was always terrifying. And I never believed, no matter 
if I had a manager or, you know, some comic I respected told me I was funny, I just never believed it. Do you think you could have, I don't know, that's really interesting. I mean, I have the same thing. I mean, I feel the same way. I've never enjoyed stand-up. Never. I've never enjoyed (laughs) stand-up. I think it's so common, especially for women. Do you think that if you were to look back on that now, I mean, if you were to say, well, how could you get past that? What do you think would have helped you understand? Because, I mean, you, you're you kind of an, well, you're an icon to all these people, you know, Zach Galifianakis being one of them, but yet you never believed that you were good enough. So what, how... What do you think? What would you say to your 25-year-old self? Like, if you could go back in time and give her some advice, is there something you would tell her? Uh, you know, I think I one of my friends, you know, I've never done um, 12-step, but I, I have a lot of friends that have, and I, I always use their little, um, I don't know if they're sayings or quotes, um, but I have actually used quite a few of them in my life. Um, but I had a friend tell me not that long ago. Um, and I don't even remember the exact quote, but it's basically like showing up as your, yourself that you are your imperfect self showing up as your imperfect self. Like it's, that's totally great. And I mean, I guess like it's, it, you know, it would be easier for me to give advice to a 25 year old. that's not myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then give advice to that person. How about 25 year old terrified Arden? That was your stand-up friend that always felt like you knew how to write jokes and that I still don't feel like I still, you know, you still have to walk. I still call you and run my set beforehand. <laughs> I think, you know, um, y- 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 preparing like you know, I used to obsess, like I should have better material. Like I should have better jokes. Um, and so I would try to write like new material before an important show. And it's like, no, just do what you have, like prepare your set, know what you're going to do and just commit to that. And then you have that, then you just be present and, that's not wording this well, but yeah, I think letting go of, of trying to be perfect. Um, because really when you are doing comedy, the moments when I've been doing stand up and I've actually had fun on stage, which are far and few between is when the fear just lifted. Um, and I was just having a conversation with the audience. You know, I think there's, yeah, I don't know. I have to think more about that, what the advice would be. That's, that's, that's great advice right there. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll discuss this advice. <laughs> great. <laughs> Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I'm just really interested by what you say because, um, you know, if I'm mentoring people who, I think, I think we talked about this before, Arden. If I'm mentoring people and they they want to be a director, yes. And this is true for me. You get people and they say, like young women, and they say, well, I feel like I want to be a director, um, but first I'm going to be like a really great focus puller. Then I'm going to go and I'm going to work in the sound department for a while. Um, And then I'm going to maybe do some producing and then I'll be ready to direct. Whereas that kind of thinking is much rarer for guys they go right I'm gonna just go and direct some stuff you know so it's quite I I don't know when I was listening to you talk I thought wow that sounds really familiar (laughs) as you I thought the same I actually thought of the story that you were telling and I was wondering Lisa 
so many of the guys that we came up with have had huge success. And then even more recently, when we reconnected 10 years ago and we're doing open mics in an Australian youth hostel in Soho or or the hand towels were people's actual bath towels, (laughs) a lot of the guys there have had tremendous success like that and it's not necessarily the most talented you know that like i mean yeah. I, I mean look that's a personal cho- thing everybody's in my opinion some of the ones have been the most talented but like do you think that if you had been a guy like in the 90s and doing it that there would have been more freedom of like all right i'm just going to do it and see what happens and i'm not going to doubt it and do you think it would have been a different experience uh you know it's hard to say uh because I just picture me being a guy, but me. Uh, I know. And, you know, and I know plenty of guys that are insecure and, and self-defeating. Um, yeah. But I do think, I, I would say that there's, it seems to be in comedy, I see women being way more, way harder on themselves. And they there's like, there might be a thing of just being raised as a, as a male that you have a little more of a built-in confidence or I don't know. I don't know. I think that the guys, I always found that they helped each other out more. I didn't, I always felt like I saw them kind of being more community minded toward each other, but that they didn't necessarily include the women in that, you know? And, and, and when we started, there weren't, that many women doing no. stand-up comedy. Uh, there's way more now. When I first showed up on the New York stand-up scene in 1994, yeah, or maybe it was 95, I did not get warm vibes from a lot of the. I mean, there, like I said, there weren't that many female comics, and I wish you and I had met then, but we kind of missed each other the first well, few years. I knew you. Maybe you didn't know me. <laughs> but we weren't, you. but we weren't, we weren't but we didn't hang up. No, we do. We, we were doing stand-up. I knew you from stand-up New York, but we, I guess we weren't, I was dating your roommate. <laughs> well, in 95, I was going to Hamburger Harry's, which was a hamburger restaurant in Times Square. Yep. Did you buy Boston Comedy Club, New York Comedy Club? There was not that many alt shows either. It was all very clubby, clubby. Yep. It was all clubby, clubby. There weren't like cool coffee shop comedy shows I remember shows your then. joke from back in the day. I remember you had a joke about standing in front of the television and your mom or your grandmother saying, get out of the way of the TV. Your grandma not a okay. Get out of the way of the TV. Your daddy not a glass maker. We were doing oh. stand up at the same time. <laughs> I know your jokes. Well, I, I guess when I first, sh- I'm talking about when I first showed up on the scene, <laughs> I had negative, um, I had a few really like, um, like mean girl experiences. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Scary. And, uh, yeah. I was like, whoa. Um, you know, and I could see like I was young and sweet and kind of funny. And they were like, who does she think she is? Yeah. And I was also, <laughs> so Yeah. So I was going to go into how I met Zach. You should. Do you want me to? Yeah. Okay. So I decided to move to New York in 1994. I was living with my boyfriend, um, the musician, and I had gone to New York and done my stand-up comedy classes. And I came back and I was like, 
oh, I've got it. I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to do stand up. But it wasn't an easy thing to do because I was in love and everything I knew and everyone I knew was in Dallas. But I, my parents also got a divorce that year. And I think that was a big motivator because I was like 20, just turned 21. And I was like, I'm too young to settle down. As much as I was crazy about my boyfriend, I was like, I can't do this right now. Like I got to I don't want to end up like my mom. And I was like, I got to go do the scariest, most difficult thing, which is move to New York City, do stand-up comedy. I did not have a clear goal of what I wanted out of it. I just knew that I had to do something drastic. And I had had this experience with taking the classes and then the culmination of the classes, we got to perform at the comic strip on the Upper East Side. And it, it was like a dream. I definitely went over my time, but I got laughs and it, I was bit definitely like I knew I had to do it more. And so moved to New York. Um, and I was there apartment hunting. It was right around Thanksgiving, 1994. <laughs> I'm so old. And I was at this bar on the Lower East Side. And my best friend at the time, Mary Armstrong, who I had known since junior high, she moved to New York with me, which was very great that I didn't have to do it alone. So she and I were in New York and we were looking for an apartment. And we we're staying in a youth hostel. And we went to get a drink at this bar called Max Fish on the Lower East Side. It was all very, I remember you remember Max Fish? Yeah, it was a great bar. It was on Ludlow Street. Yeah, it was, that was, that's where to be. That's where to be. But this was like, it was still a little kind of dangerous at that time. And Zach Galifianakis, so we're hanging out at this bar. I was at the bar waiting, trying to get, order a drink. And Zach was sitting, like standing next to me trying to get a drink. And he said to me, Hey, will you get that guy over there to buy you a drink and then give it to me? <laughs> and we just started chatting and it didn't feel like this is a cute guy at the bar and we're flirting. It felt like this is my friend. Like it just felt we like we know each for other. For our listeners, he was so cute back in the day. Like if people know him now as more of a character, like 1995, Zach was adorable adorable really adorable and dynamic and just so and you know he was southern he was fresh to new york from north carolina and he wanted to be an actor that was what he was there for and he was really serious about it and he wore overalls and rollerblades <laughs> <laughs> he would literally rollerblade and hang on to the back of the city bus while while wearing overalls I remember he was cleaning houses and then he also worked at one of that real, the really thin frozen yogurt things that was like between two storefronts. That was like just on the Upper West Side. That was like, it was basically like just this, the width of a machine, like a frozen yogurt machine. <laughs> wow, I totally forgot about that. That's yeah, so it was funny. like on like 73rd and Columbus and it was like the width of a frozen yogurt machine and he... <laughs> worked there. And then he was like a house cleaner. He was like, he was like, you could hire him like 50 bucks to clean your toilet. So, it, so you met him and you're like, this is not a romantic thing, but this is my friend. I feel like we're not flirting. This is my friend. And, and it just so happened that on the other end of the bar that night that I met him, my friend Mary was chit-chatting with A.D. Miles, 
who is also a very successful comedy person. Um, he was a head writer for the Tonight Show. Yep. Um, but he he and Miles had gone to college together and were living on the Lower East Side in this tenement apartment and across the street from Max Fish. So the four of us all met up. I remember that apartment. Did it have a tub in the kitchen? It did. It had I remember that. I rem- I've been in that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, the toilet, you like kind of could barely fit your legs into the room with the toilet. It was like, it was a closet. I wanted to just catch up to present day and say, yeah, okay. I do too. So you are now li- living in Los Angeles. Are you still doing stand up? Well, <clears throat> pre pandemic, I was doing stand up. Yes, I had, you know, I was actually still doing open mics. Um, I had a manager, uh, who I really liked a woman here in LA. Um, but I was, and I was hosting a monthly show with, with an old friend from the old days, Andrea Rosen, who's so funny and lovely. Um, so I was doing it, but I was still, I was going to commercial auditions. Um, but not really sure what I wanted. But you also have been finding, since I've known you, I've never met a bigger animal lover. And like, as you, you know, and you had a variety of different jobs. Arden was telling me that you, um, that you trained as an occupational therapist along the way. I did. And that you worked for the ASPCA. I did. I did. And that you're an animal trainer. You are right now an animal trainer. Is that right? (laughs) Well, when I moved back to LA uh, three and a half years ago, I needed to make money. And I had just come off of that job working, uh, doing outreach in the South Bronx for the ASPCA, which was a crazy job. Uh, And I have a comedian friend who is now married to a woman who owns a private training company here in LA. And I met her. She was great. We got along. She hired me and I trained, I mentored with a trainer, a positive reinforcement trainer. And it was scary to start doing something brand new in my forties. But I was like, Whoa, this is so cool. It's, learning to communicate with dogs and through positive reinforcement. And so, yeah, cut to now. I, after doing it for three years, I feel like I'm actually kind of becoming pretty proficient at it. And I love training dogs and it's, I I can make money doing it. It, there's no shortage, especially during the pandemic. Everybody's got a new puppy. And um, I, I actually want, I'm really motivated now to kind of make it more public uh, that positive reinforcement is the way to go because there is still so much of the old school way of training dogs using aversive tools and punitive ways like, you know, uh, leash jerks and prong collars. I mean, every other dog in LA is wearing a prong collar and I just want it be. And the, one of the reasons for that is because Caesar Milan is the most famous dog trainer. 
-hmm. and his, his techniques are not science-based and they've been debunked. I mean, some of them, he, you know, he used some appropriate techniques, but any of his, I, you you have to be dominant. You are the leader. Um, it's all just malarkey and it's, it's, it's damaging. But as a person who loves you and is rooting for you, like, and is just your number one fan, I have to say, just witnessing the sheer fact that you are taking ownership of some, like, that you're good at it and you know you're good at it. And, like, you're letting your, like, just the gift of that, of, like, owning, like, I'm good at this. And I think I, I know you've spoken to me that you, you're, you'd love to have, like, a show or something where you could, like, it seems like you found something that is makes you feel good about yourself and feels a little bit like a calling. Does that feel accurate? It does. Is it more so than stand-up or the same as? More so. But I, I do feel like stand-up is just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I could have found my way to, to training dogs and because so much of it is training people and working with people. And yeah, and I, I think I envision somehow that they're all, it's all going to come together in some way. It's mm-hmm. all going to feed into each other. And But yeah, I do definitely feel like for once in my life, I'm actually like, yeah, I'm really good at this. I love that this is a happy ending. There's something outside showbiz. That's crazy. I know. I know. It's, yeah. But you know what? Honestly, it took a pandemic for yeah. me to really open myself up to that possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You seem the least questioning. You seem the happiest and the least questioning and like that, you know, you're being of service and that you are that what you do makes a difference. Julianne has a new puppy. I do. I Ooh. do. I guess. I mean, just just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, we Arden and I were talking and we kind of see you and I don't know if you find this offensive or whether you think it's accurate. We see you as a rebel. You're kind really? of a rebel. Yeah. yeah. You did it your own way. You did it. Your, you did, you've done it your way. You're Gary's girl. <laughs> I take that. I actually take that as a huge compliment. I, I like that. You didn't let just like ambition or like you, you just you're like, this is who I am. And mm-hmm. not in a gross way. I'm not. But like, it's just like, I think you you've stuck true to your sense of self. And we're uncompromising in a way that. I think a lot of people might have folded in and been like, oh, okay, this is what you want me to be. Like, I think you protected yourself. Oh, wow. That's interesting. (laughs) I feel like I, you know, I I think that, yeah, I have to think about that. I I think I, yeah, I I beat up my, you know, I beat myself up a lot. I think that's what we all do is we're so hard on ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's part of the beauty of getting older is like, you really do just give up the fight at a certain point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think I I just finally let go of trying to make myself do things that didn't feel natural, didn't feel like the right fit. And yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's been, I could talk to you for hours. It has been, I just love you so much. You've been such a good friend to me and I'm so glad our listeners Work uh, can get to know you. Where can people find out more about you, either your comedy or your dog training services? I love you too, Arden. Um, and you too, Julianne. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, 
I'm on Instagram, just my personal Instagram, which is mostly pictures of my dog, is Lisa Delarios. D-E-L-A-I-D-E-L-A-R-I-O-S. Yes. And I have a, a sister Instagram, which is my dog training Instagram, uh, which is Lisa Loves Dogs, L-U-V-Z, which is embarrassing, but somebody already took L-O-V-E-S. Uh <laughs> So yeah, that's kind of me trying to, I'm trying to be more dog trainery on social media. This has been great. Thank you so much Thank for talking you for, to us. Thanks for coming to play with us and we'll be right back. Lady! Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back. And if you want to email us, you can email us at ladyroadpodcast at gmail.com. We love to get your emails. We love, please like us on iTunes, leave us reviews, tell your friends. The more we have people, you know, it actually really helps us. It makes iHeart go, oh, this was a good decision to give these scales this podcast. <laughs> so even if you're not feeling just go go over to Apple Apple Podcasts and give us a nice star over there. Um, Julianne, anything you want to promote before we head off? I have nothing to promote. Great. Nothing at all. I'm at Arda Marine and Instagram, A-R-D-E-N-M-Y-R-I-N or Lady Road Podcast. Everybody stay safe. Wear a mask. Have a good time. Be nice to one another. And we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.